Hey everyone, welcome to a special episode of Asley's EcoCast. We're happy to be sharing with you more audio from Asley's Spotlight series, which feature moderated conversations with Asley members who have produced new critical and creative work in the environmental humanities. Episodes follow a theme and highlight publicly engaged scholarship. This special episode is the second of the 2022 series, titled Entangled Geographies, and was recorded on April 22, 2022, with Matt Henry and Jennifer Ladino as co-hosts, and featured guests Elizabeth Carolyn Miller, Lynn Heasley, Amanda M. Smith, and Katerina Bellin. The third episode of 2022, titled Beyond Human, will be held virtually on Friday, May 20th, 2022, at 1 p.m. U.S. Eastern Time. You can register to attend now at asley.org. All right. Um, I think we can get started. Um, so, uh, first of all, welcome everyone. Um, just to let you know, we're recording this session. I think Zoom should have let you know. Um, and we've also enabled a live transcript for closed captioning. Um, you may find that option on the control bar that usually appears at the bottom of your Zoom screen. Um, so we're extending the warmest welcome to the second Asley Spotlight of 2022 on the topic of entangled uh, geographies. And my name is Matt Henry. I'm an assistant professor. Um, and I'm so happy to be able to participate in today's event. Um, I'm zooming in from the University of Wyoming in Laramie, located on the ancestral and traditional homelands of the Cheyenne, Arapaho, Crow, and Shoshone peoples, along with other native tribes who call the Great Basin and the Rocky Mountain region home. Um, and we at the University of Wyoming um, recognize, support, and advocate alongside indigenous individuals and communities who live here now and with those forcibly removed from their homelands. Um, for those of you joining the ASLI event for the first time, we just, again, want to extend a hearty welcome. Um, we're so glad for you to join us today uh, and invite you to help sustain and further our work uh, by becoming an ASLI member if you're not already part of the association. Hi, everyone. My name is Jen Ladino. It's great to see you all here. Um, I'm a professor of English, uh, former VP of ASLI, and it's my pleasure to be part of this event today and to welcome you all. I'm zooming in today from Moscow, Idaho, which is located on the homelands of the Nimipu or Nez Perce peoples. And I'm zooming, um, I'm gonna extend the University of Idaho's land acknowledgement. Um, our university extends gratitude to the indigenous people that call this place home and have since time immemorial. UI recognizes that it's our academic responsibility to build relationships with indigenous people to ensure integrity of tribal voices. This is a work in progress, I would add, and all land acknowledgements are imperfect and just a starting point for, for action. Um, Asley's leadership launched this new series last year to elevate the work of our members in creative writing, scholarship, public engagement, and more. We're excited to continue to foster connections with new public audiences through these spotlight events. Um, again, please do remain on mute. Um, one more note, we'll have time for questions later. Matt and I will try to keep ours um, brief, although we have so many things we want to talk to these brilliant panelists about. Um, please do use the chat to post questions and try to keep them concise. Um, don't model it on mine. I'm terrible at this. Um, but we only have brief minutes together, so um, we appreciate concision where possible. Before we hear from the panelists, I'm just going to introduce Matt Henry in a bit more detail. Um, Matt is Assistant Instructional Professor in the Honors College and affiliate with the School of Energy Resources at the University of Wyoming, where his teaching, research, and community engagement work focuses on environmental and climate justice, rural social resilience, water issues, and the transition to renewable energy in the Intermountain West. His forthcoming book, Hydro Narratives, 
Water Environmental Justice and a Just Transition, which will be out this year, it looks like with the University of Nebraska, Great Press, um, explores how narrative and storytelling support environmental justice advocacy in water insecure communities in North America. Thanks so much, Jen, and I'm happy to introduce my wonderful co-host. Um, Jennifer Ladino is a professor of English at the University of Idaho, um, core faculty in environmental science, and a co-founder of the Confluence Lab, which incubates and implements creative interdisciplinary research projects that bring together scholars in the humanities, arts, and sciences, and community members to engage environmental issues in the state of Idaho and beyond. And she is the author of Memorials Matter, Emotion, Environment, and Public Memory at American Historical Sites, uh, Reclaiming Nostalgia, Longing for Nature in American Literature, and co-editor with Kyle Bledow of Affective, Affective Eco-Criticism, Emotion, Embodiment, um, and Environment. Um, so now um, it's my pleasure to introduce our uh, panelists and they're gonna um, talk a little bit. So we'll just alternate introducing them. So first I'd like to introduce Elizabeth Carolyn Miller, uh, professor of English at the University of California, Davis, where she teaches 19th and early 20th century literature as well as courses in the environmental humanities. Uh, and subject of our discussion today, Extraction Ecologies and the Literature of the Long Exhaustion through uh, Princeton, of Universe, Princeton University Press, which came out in 2021, um, is her third book. So I'll, uh, I'll give it up to uh, Dr. Miller. Thank you so much, Matt. Um, it's really a pleasure to be here. I wanna just start off by saying that I'm zooming in from UC Davis, which is a land grant campus on the traditional lands of the Petwin peoples. And I just wanna also uh, say briefly, thanks so much to the organizers and moderators and to my fellow presenters. And thanks to everyone in the audience who's taken time out of their day uh, to come to this event. Happy Earth Day to everybody. I hope you'll all get a chance to get outside and off Zoom at some point today. Um, so I'm just gonna talk really briefly about my new book, Extraction Ecologies and the Literature of the Long Exhaustion. It's a study of the long environmental cultural legacy of industrialized, imperialized extraction. This is a mode of human relations with the natural world that emerges in the early 19th century with the birth of the fossil economy and the attendant rise in large-scale mineral resource extraction. Extraction Ecologies focuses on the ways that the literary archive bears witness to industrial extraction's transformation of the world and to the rise of what Bruce Braun has called a vertical nature, underground, stretching miles below the Earth's surface. The specific period on which my book focuses begins in the early 1830s with the decisive shift to steam power in British manufacturing and distribution. And it ends in the late 1930s with the dawn of the nuclear era, which brought new imaginings of post-extractive energy sources. What I hope to capture with this chronology is a period when Britain and the British empire, the first fossil fueled society came to understand itself as an empire thoroughly dependent on extraction. So that is to say an extraction based society bound up with the mining of underground material with no viable alternative capable of preserving existing social relations. My study proceeds from the idea that the extraction of underground mineral resources, not only coal, but also gold, iron, tin, copper, silver, and more can be conceived of as a singular activity. And that this activity of mineral resource extraction was bound up with a new cluster of socio-environmental conditions, extractivism. 
Extractivism names a complex of cultural, discursive, economic, environmental, and ideological factors related to the extraction of underground resources on a large industrial scale. While there were important differences between, say, coal mining and gold mining, differences that I attend to in the study, there are two major similarities, I think, that yoke together these various forms of mineral resource extraction as a singular activity in the industrial imperial era. First, extraction of all kinds relied on the use of steam for the draining of mines, crushing of ore, and transport of commodities. So virtually every technological component of the extraction supply chain was accelerated phenomenally by steam. Thus, the accelerated extraction of coal in the early 19th century led to more intense exploitation of all kinds of subsurface resources. Secondly, all such underground resources were connected by their material finitude. And finitude and non-reproducibility, above all, distinguish mineral resource mining as an extractive process. Extractive energy, uh, sorry, extractive industry can never benefit from regeneration or replenishment, but can only move on to a new vein or a new site. In the era that I study, in fact, metal and mineral resources were defined in economic terms by their special lack of regenerative capacity. So economist W. Stanley Jevons, for example, in his 1865 book, The Coal Question, wrote, a farm, however far pushed, will under proper cultivation continue to yield forever a constant crop. But in a mine, there is no reproduction and the produce once pushed to the utmost will begin to fail and sink to zero. As this suggests, exhaustion emerged in this era as a distinctive trajectory of extraction-based life. An extraction-based society that was economically grounded in the extraction of finite materials was understood to mean a society that was in a new way unsustainable for the long run. So literature, the industrial era, was, I think, in the remarkable position of confronting ideationally the mode of life that we all experience today, one that proceeds by depleting from the future. My study explores how extractivism and its attendant notions of exhaustion shaped literary form and genre, and how literary form and genre at the same time contributed to new ways of imagining an extractable earth. Thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Professor Miller. That was um, brilliant. And, and I'm sure there will be a lot of questions about your book, which I can't wait to pick up. Um, next up, we're gonna hear from Lynn Heasley. Um, Lynn Heasley is an environmental historian at Western Michigan University. Through literary and academic hybrids, she explores our kaleidoscopic relationships with water and aquatic life. She is the author or editor of several books, including the one she'll be talking about today, The Accidental Reef and Other Ecological Odysseys in the Great Lakes. Thanks, Matt, Jen, Amy, um, everyone who's here today. This is just such an honor and a pleasure. Um, I am zooming in from Kalamazoo, Michigan, and my university is Western Michigan University, and both are located on lands of the Ojibwe, Odawa, and Potawatomi Nations. And we honor this ancestral homeland of the Three Fires Confederacy, um, the sacred lands of all indigenous peoples and their continued presence in our region. All right, so I'll, um, I'll also do a, a semi-formal prepared overview of my book. Um, and I started with my own question, what's the story that the book tells? 
And so the accidental reef begins at a nondescript pile of rocks on the St. Clair River bottom. The St. Clair River is part of the Huron-Erie connecting waters, and its more famous sibling connecting water would be the Detroit River. They're all part of the same system. From there, fish and humans converge, transform each other, and take arduous but sometimes wondrous journeys towards their uncertain fates in the Great Lakes and beyond. The book narrates these multiple journeys and perspectives. This pile of rocks is the book's namesake, The Accidental Reef, which was an accident of industrial history at the turn of the 20th century as a steamship offloaded coal waste in the same location of the St. Clair River. And over 20 years, that pile of coal clinkers became an unknown spawning site for Lake Sturgeon, which were suffering near extinction from industrial scale overfishing, habitat destruction, and a basic persecution of the species, which for a long time had been considered a trash species. The same U.S.-Canadian area of waterway, the St. Clair River Delta and Lake St. Clair, was where zebra mussels, Dreisina polymorpha, got their first establishment in the Great Lakes and in the United States. And this was also the same corridor that gave rise to um, perhaps the, the heartland of industry in the late 19th and early 20th century with the rise of chemical, paper, automobile, sand mining, oil extraction and other industries in the area. And one legacy of that was an intensity of toxic pollution from the petrochemical industry, which was some of the worst in the country and harmed Anishinaabe peoples, um, including two um, sovereign First Nation reserves in the St. Clair River. And so begin our many entwined ecological odysseys. And I want to show you what a coal clinker is, because perhaps people um, haven't recognized if, if they've walked the shores of the Great Lakes or along a railroad track that that's what they're seeing. So here's a little coal clinker. And it's a it's a product of, of poor quality coal burning in the furnaces. Um, and it looks like lava. And so it washes up on a variety of Great Lakes shores. And I, I think people anywhere in the country would see it and say, what's this? So this is that pile that formed this unknown spawning reef um, into the 1990s. One of the human journeys in this book involves the discovery of this accident of history. And it's more than human world below. And that discovery was by a pair of local divers and artists um, whose own intense knowledge of the river um, asked them or led them to, to ask questions um, that took them to this, not just this little pile of coal cinders, but to a much larger reef under the actual Blue Water Bridge crossing from Canada to the U.S. And that spot that they discovered turned out to be the largest and maybe the most important sturgeon spawning site um, in the Great Lakes region and something that wasn't known until the mid-1990s. And so the very fact of their discovery of this caused me to ask all sorts of questions about what it means when you see or when you don't see and what it means when you have a kind of knowledge that's not a privileged knowledge, it's not a scientific knowledge, but you have that curiosity and that lay knowledge that allows you to go in a different direction. Other journeys are darker 
toward reckoning with the full scale of industrial assault on the Great Lakes and its peoples over two centuries. And I call this the paradox of abundance. And that's part three of the book. Um, and it's almost entirely about different ways of visualizing the scale of extraction um, in this region and how that scale of extraction is related to um, you know, a century and a half of global um, transnational networks of a variety of industries that seem disparate, but in reality have been interconnected for more than a century. And a third set of journeys are toward deeper knowledge, wonder, compassion, new ways of knowing and relating that allow us to care for the Great Lakes and for water more generally, and each other with humility, responsibility, reciprocity. And so the core themes woven throughout a series of stories are ways of seeing and knowing or the implications of not seeing or the implications of not fully respecting other kinds of knowledges. And a second theme is the paradox of abundance. And finally, I just want to make a note on the structure and narrative of the book. Um, it's not a conventional scholarly book. Um, my, my press gave me the liberty to kind of free range a little bit, to experiment, to try different ways of visualizing, um, to allow each chapter and the content of each chapter to determine the form of that chapter. And so some of them will sound like traditional environmental history. Some of them will be, you know, essentially bullet points. Um, some of them will be, you know, my my efforts at a kind of lyric essay in some ways. And, and, and so in that sense, it's a little idiosyncratic. Um, but what drove these narrative choices um, had to do with how we learn about place. And I think all of us in entangled geographies are place-based here. And so... Um, most people, as I prepared here, most people who live close to the lakes come to know them from the ground or the water up. They learn one small special place at a time, personally, and through direct experience. And that layering of experience through space and time is the inspiration for this book's flow. Begin hyper-local at this accidental reef um, that very few people will ever see, then build upward towards satellite views. Um, and so in between are those human scales of the river and the kinds of controversies and, um, and colonial and decolonial narratives that, that, that many of us are grappling with. The reason I don't start at that NASA satellite level of the Great Lakes, you know, large policies about water, um, even though that is a common starting point for environmental historians like me, um, is that that satellite imagery is not the starting point for most people for knowing and protecting the largest system of freshwater on Earth. And so in that sense, I want to move upwards from that hyperlocal to that global and satellite view. All right, great, Lynn, thanks so much. Just echoing the comments about how gorgeous the cover is, which reflects how gorgeous the writing is in your text. Um, so I'm eager to, eager to talk more about it during the Q&A. Um, next up, we're gonna hear from Amanda M. Smith, um, who's an assistant professor of literature at the University of California, Santa Cruz, where she specializes in 20th and 21st century Latin American literatures and cultures through an environmental lens. Okay, yeah, thank you, Matt, and thanks to Amy and Bridget for organizing, to my um, co-presenters and to the moderators, to all of you for being here. Um, I'm speaking to you today from the unceded territory of the Awaswa-speaking Yupi tribe, which is today represented by the Amamutsun tribal band. Um, so my book, Mapping the Amazon Literary Geography After the Rubber Room, is broadly speaking, it's about how representations of place can actually shape the worlds that we sense and co-construct. 
And this project began with an observation, which was that since the end of the Amazon rubber boom in the 1920s, Amazonia has inspired a number of novels about the violence that undergirds industries in the region, extractive industries. And those novels all obsess over the role of faulty maps in the continuous commodification of the forest. So I wondered why intellectuals were turning to fiction and particularly the novel to contest the region's cartographic records. I wondered that, you know, as authors were highlighting the ongoing effects of other institutional representations of Amazonia, were there real impacts to their uh, literary mappings entering the cultural market? as they were sort of wielding literary discourse to call attention to harmful omissions um, in other Amazonian cartographies, what might they also have inadvertently missed in their novel maps? And how does geographic erasure and literary mappings resemble and differ from other forms of geographic erasure? In other words, what are the stakes of literary cartographies? So in Amazonia, the relationship between mapping and extractivism is well-documented. You're looking at the first methodical scientific map of the entire course of the Amazon River by uh, French geographer Charles-Marie de la Condamine. So if you go, just go to the next um, slide bit, there you go. So on this map, alongside lines meticulously rendered with precision instruments, there appears, um, as Neil Safier has pointed out, an unobserved lake as a placeholder for the site of El Dorado. So first scientific map, unobserved lake for El Dorado. And you can go to the next little click there as well to blow it up. Oh, yeah. So from the earliest efforts to chart the expansive and heterogeneous region laced together by the world's largest river and its tributaries, projections of mythical wealth were authorized by systematized geographic data. Science and fantasy have co-constructed the region as a place where the search for legendary treasures is tautologically justified by their indisputable position on the map. Europeans filled voids in their cartographic archive of the river basin with image, images of unclaimed riches. And today Amazonia designates a quintessential extractive zone uh, that is according to Macarena Gomez Barris, a biodiverse region reduced to capitalist resource conversion by colonial and neo-colonial tools and technologies. So from this haphazard search for gold and cinnamon during the colonial period to the systematized extraction of latex from rubber trees during the Amazon rubber boom of 1850 to 1920, and into the 20th and 21st century logging, mining, and oil industries, identifying Amazonian resources and obscuring the harmful effects of removing them has indelibly transformed the river basin. The large-scale pan-regional rubber economy first made it possible to imagine Amazonian backwaters neatly flowing into a network of global supply chains. Mass exportation commenced in 1850. It surged with the 1890 bicycle boom in the United States and then with the automotive industry. Population exploded in what were then sleepy jungle towns, Iquitos, Peru, and Manaus, Brazil. And to fuel the economy, rubber barons bound their workers to servitude with insurmountable debt. Many indigenous communities migrated to avoid being captured for labor, domestic servitude, and prostitution. The entire social geography of the, river, of the region was transformed. Now, in the century following uh, the rubber boom, after it went bust, there was this body of Amazonian novels that has grappled with the human and ecological toll of this massive structural and social reorganization caused by the demand for rubber and solidified by later industries. In 20th and early 21st century Amazonian novels, maps are ubiquitous tropes that draw attention to the role of mapping 
and instrumentalizing Amazonia as a stockpile of raw materials for the world beyond it. In such novels, mapping also becomes an aesthetic framework to contest that process. The fictional narratives chart the river basin otherwise, crafting stories of human and ecological loss to highlight the affective experience of extractivism in contrast to the material production of passive resources. My book explores how such novels, works by Jose Eustacio Rivera, Romulo Gallegos, Mario Vargas Llosa, Cesar Calvo, and Marcio Souza, engage with maps and mapping to challenge the very precepts that authorize cartographic claims to the region and its resources. These authors use fiction to plot some of the fictional qualities of, a fic of official nonfiction representations of Amazonia, namely their affirmations of forest riches and their denial that anything stands in the way of acquiring them. But mapping always necessarily involves abstraction and reduction, even in literary maps. And so their, their narrative maps are no exception. And I show in the book how as they expose one omission, they produce another. And those omissions often have had lasting impacts in the region. Thanks. Thanks so much, Amanda. That's fascinating. I can't wait to hold this book in my hands. Um, okay, so our last panelist, and then we'll have time for Q&A, is Kata Baileen. Kata Baileen is a professor at the Department of Spanish and Portuguese and a faculty director of Latin American, Caribbean, and Iberian Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Her current book and film projects are focused on a revival of Maya culture in Yucatan, Mexico, that is inspired by the Maya relations with sacred species and ecosystems, including maize, melipona bees, and cenotes. I love this film. I highly recommend it to all of you. Kata, it's all you. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really feel honored. And I'm speaking from the University of Wisconsin-Madison, which lies on the ground of Ho-Chunk people, uh, to which uh, we uh, always express our gratefulness. Um, and I also would like to say thank you to uh, Asle for uh, the subvention for the film. Uh, that's uh, the way I think we kind of first met with Ami. Uh, we uh, uh, we applied for a subvention grant to 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 finish the film. So I'm going to start to tell you um, telling you a little bit about how the project uh, uh, began. I was uh, doing research on the resistance of uh, Mayan beekeepers against genetically engineered uh, soy in um, Merida um, started uh, starting to interview um, activists. Uh, it was uh, July 2016, and hurricane arrived uh, to the area. The uh, city was drenched in the rain, and uh, I uh, was going to the airport to pick up one of my collaborators and um, got completely cold and wet and had to enter into a place to have some uh, soup to heat myself. And there were, most of the places were closed. Um, one open but completely empty place where I entered um, had beautiful um, Mayan uh, culture-inspired uh, decoration all around. And I uh, ordered Sopa de Lima, the person who served me the soup, started asking me questions what I was doing there. And when I said uh, that I wanted to learn about 
He uh, sat next to me and said that he hated researchers, American researchers, Western researchers in general, all researchers who were coming to learn about Mayan culture and then um, turn them into objects and present them through the filter of their subjectivity in their books. So I said, oh, wow, <laughs> what am I going to do? And this was the first moment when I thought, about presenting my interviews in a direct way. And that was the first moment when I thought about uh, making a film uh, in uh, parallel to the article that I have published with my collaborator, Saina Suryana Rainan, and uh, the book that I'm thinking about writing right now. So we also talk, this person was um, Pedro Pablo Chimbacab, whose narr narration uh, it begins the film. Uh, we also talked about uh, Mayan epistemology and the idea that uh, their relationship towards nature is completely different than ours, that for them, everything is a subject, not an object like it is in uh, Western um, um, philosophies. Uh, and uh, that interview with Pedro Pablo Chimbacab starts the film because... Um, I wanted to filter the story that I'm telling through this conceptual framework to show that the story is not just about resources. It's not struggle about resources, but that a world based on complex network of relationship between human and non-human subject that evolved for thousands of years without losing equilibrium is threatened and uh, what is the story? The story formally begins in 2011 when Yucatec Mayan honey is rejected by European authority at the port of departure in Progreso near Merida due to high levels of transgenic pollen. It's caused by the transformed way that European authorities measure the contamination in the honey. Uh, but uh, that moment uh, wakes up Mayan beekeepers uh, who um, suddenly realize that during the recent years, they have been surrounded by the plantations of soy that is genetically modified. Now, genetically modifying plants is, is a technology which is invisible, right? So no one suspects uh, serious consequences that it can have for uh, forests that need to be cut, for such huge plantations to be planted, for uh, human health that is threatened because the toxic substances accompanying agriculture uh, flow to the subterranean waters and become uh, a component of water that most of the people drink, and most of all to that complex world of relationships uh, that has been there for thousands of years and that is now beginning to collapse. And in that world, the main relationship that we uh, try to... Um, Highlight in the film is a relationship between Mayan people and Melitona bees. Melitona bees are sacred bees for the Mayan people that have been kept for thousands of years. And the idea that we uh, 
that we present in our publication and in the film is that uh, it is thanks to this relationship that Mayan people managed to build a very strong coalition and lead a debatably successful struggle against uh, the model of development in the region that they uh, questioned. Thank you. Okay, thank you so much, Kata. I'm really excited to hear what questions our audience members have. Um, and, and before we, we do that, um, Jen and I are gonna ask two questions and then as time allows, we'll ask one to two audience members uh, who have asked questions in the chat to unmute and pose their questions. Um, so hopefully we can get through um, of several questions here. And I'm just gonna start and then we'll, I'm just gonna ask one question and it's for all four of you um, is, um, I'm really struck by the notions of extraction and counter extraction and how they pervade each of your works in, in a lot of different ways. Um, there's some conventional notions um, of mineral extraction, um, as well as the sort of phenomena of extractive research practices that Kata just mentioned, for instance, um, uh, or knowledge generation. And there are also um, discussions or efforts to resist mapping that presumes access to indigenous lands and citizen science and imagined an alternative intersections between energy and culture. So I was just gonna ask each of you to speak to the potentialities and the limits of storytelling and imagining alternatives to extraction or extractivism. Should we go in order or just whoever wants to answer? Um, yeah, why don't we just go in order? That sounds good. Sure. Thank, thanks so much for that question. And um, thanks, everyone, for your um, introductions to these great projects. Um, so, I mean, in terms of thinking about um, the potentials or limits of, of storytelling, you know, in terms of imagining alternatives to extraction, I think I would say that, you know, my, my book is focused on, on literary genre, really, and about the development of particular kinds of literary genre in the era of extractivism, um, because genre is something that stays with us across time. So I think even, you know, though I'm looking at 1830s to 1930s, a lot of the kind of like narrative formations that come into play in that period, you know, have remained with us and still continue to shape the stories that we tell about the environment and our relationship to it. Um, so some of the genres that I look at are more like realist genres, which I see as, you know, representing extraction more like as it is in the period, but but on like a bigger scale than individuals can represent. So this goes along with kind of conventional ideas about realism, being able to represent totality in certain ways. So like a, a multi-generational novel can kind of like, you know, look at a bigger expanse of time and, and the kind of... Um, you know, uh, consequences for the future of certain actions or, you know, like an adventure novel that takes place over a wide, you know, sp space um, can talk about like how different parts of the world are, are, are related. So like, you know, the site of consumption and the sacrifice zone where the resources come from. But in terms of imagining alternatives, I think the section of my book that most gets into that is the speculative fiction section, which looks at, you know, different kinds of imaginings of like post-extractive society, you know, from within this moment of, of kind of anxiety about resource finitude. So I'll just mention one text that I talk about, which is uh, Sultana's Dream uh, by Rukeya Sakawat Hussein. And this was a short story that came out in 1905 about a solar-powered feminist utopia. And it's really fascinating because you know, unlike a lot of the energy speculative fictions I look at in the book, it's not this totally like 
imaginary type of energy, but it's actually based on, you know, um, research into solar power in the 19th century, you know, the, and, and it, to me, it sort of represents this kind of like path that could have, you know, been explored further, right? That, 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 um, that Sakawa Hussein is really suggest, suggesting there's a connection between, you know, patriarchy and extractivist energy by imagining this like female ruled solar powered utopia. Um, but, but, but the way that she sort of imagines a whole society based on solar is also, um, like I said, kind of representing another path that we didn't go down. Thank you. I'll, um, I'll be the juxtaposition, the kind of the, the kind of real world environmental history and what it means in the present. Um, but there's, you know, there's lots of literary analysis to be had for people who want to build on this, but, um, in some ways, Great Lakes history, the history of the Great Lakes as a, a, a vast binational region is a history of continuous extraction. Um, and the magnitude really is beyond imagination. And, and perhaps one of the major themes, if you look at extraction in the Great Lakes region, is this idea of limitless abundance, no matter the resource itself. So um, the last two flocks of passenger pigeons were in Michigan and Wisconsin. Um, you've got the lake sturgeon that almost went extinct, the Arctic grayling that did um, iron ore with um, the Mesabi range of Minnesota, but also some ranges in Michigan, um, providing up to 94% of the iron in the country. Um, salt, you know, we have, um, we have a couple of the largest salt mines in the world under Lake Erie and Lake Huron. Sand, we're one of the biggest suppliers of frac sand. Um, in the country and also sand for um, sand for construction, um, natural gas exploitation. And so, th so this history of extraction um, is completely intertwined at global scales. Um, and the transnational corporations of today trace their ancestors back to the intertwined transnational corporations of the turn of the 20th century. Um, and they're an interconnected family tree. Um, so there's an asymmetry because um, this creates great disconnects at local scales um, that bear the consequences of this extraction or aren't able to shape the future of it in time. And so if you Think about where I'm from, Kalamazoo, the largest inland oil spill um, in U.S. history. Some say the second largest, but I'll just say the largest um, in U.S. history was in a tiny little town called Marshall, um, and a tributary of the Kalamazoo River, which empties into Lake Michigan. Um, but how do you get um, a Minnesotan to care about a little town called Marshall on a little river they've never heard of called the Kalamazoo? Um, you know, the, the, that, that connection's not there. So there's an asymmetry. And then conversely, you've got oil pipelines, um, the, the redirecting of route of Enbridge Line 3 that is a tremendous threat right now to Ojibwe native rice um, beds. And so, you know, how do we in Kalamazoo or maybe, you know, Toronto um, in Ontario, how do you have that? care. And so there's an asymmetry between that really long history of entwined transnational globalization of resource extraction with these disconnected little places. 
And yet um, these oil pipelines are part of the same system. They're part of the Enbridge Lakehead system and, um, and they start in Canada. And so they are part of that global network. And so in terms of storytelling, how, you know, how do we deal with this asymmetry? It's happening in real time right now. Um, we don't know the end of it yet, but we are in the middle of some kind of serious transformation that involves relationship building and community building on the ground right now, in which we are starting um, we are starting to see um, both regional and global networks of local communities who are starting to share not just knowledge and experiences of these larger global networks, um, but actual paradigm shifts. So even decolonization, um, the centrality of, of indigenous knowledges, um, the reassertion um, of what has always been there, the agency of Native Americans and First Nations and indigenous communities elsewhere, their centrality in leading towards new approaches, new knowledges for the rest of us, but their long-term approaches to relating to the natural world. And so I, I think where storytelling comes into the, you know, the discourse on extraction is this building of a global, you know, a, a, a global network of local communities who are starting to force some paradigm shifts in our relationship to the natural world. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry, were you done, Lynn? Um, yeah, I, I just kind of want to echo what Lynn's saying. I think, you know, the question, how do you get someone to care? I think storytelling is one way. I think um, fiction, cultural production, storytelling um, has the ability to let our imaginations really wander, to imagine new ways of being, to imagine uh, forms of more than humanness that are sustainable beyond the confines of, you know, reality um, of capitalism to just, you know, have that thought experiment. Um, but I'll say something that really came through in the research of my book and that I think is really important to emphasize is that it really matters who is telling the story about whom and how. Um, and my colleagues, Martina Broner and um, Carolina, Carolyn Fornoff are doing some really cool media studies work on the how part of that question. That is like, what is the uh, ecological cost of producing something that that then has an environmental um, message? I'm going to focus on the the who and the about whom, um, and I'll just give you one example. But all of the authors in my book, even the worst one, Mario Vargas Llosa, <laughs> they all had good intentions in writing these novels to denounce, you know, what's going on in the Amazon. Um, but not, none of them were exactly from the region. And so there were just things that they couldn't see, that they couldn't sense, that they didn't understand, and that they then misrepresented. And that because they wrote what turned out to be canonical, widely read novels, sort of indelibly shaped people's understanding of the region. Um, so just as an example, Romulo Gallegos, a Venezuelan author, wrote a novel called Canaima. Um, and Canaima in the book is sort of this spirit, this sort of anti-extractivist spirit that um, he's writing against um, President Vicente Gomez's economic policies at the time. And, um, and now Canaima has become like a household name in Venezuela. It's the name of a software company. It's uh, or actually the state software. It's the name of a national park. Um, but Canaima is also a form of shamanism. And it's such a powerful word that um, the Pemón intellectual Ricardo Delgado says it should not even be uttered. And yet today there are around 30,000 Paymon people living in Canaima National Park. 
And they are fighting to maintain traditional stewardship practices in a national park space that outlaws, um, you know, generational practices. Um, so this is just an instance of somebody extracting indigenous culture to add sort of a local color um, to this anti-extractivist fight. And it's taken on this whole new meaning. And yeah, I mean, the, the book does something important maybe for a certain kind of reader at the time, right? But um, the who is writing and about whom is, is really quite important in this sort of uh, community coalition building that Lynn was talking about. Okay, so my turn. Um, extraction in my work. Well, first, most obviously there is extraction. Um, the monocrops are agricultural agricultural extraction project, right? They, there is extraction of nutrients from the soil. Um, but what ha has to happen for this extraction to be possible is, is also part of that extraction process. The forests have to be cut. The uh, um, people who live in those forests, from those forests need to be uh, pushed away. Um, so... Um, decampesinación, as we call it in Spanish. So basically turning the countryside into a place where no one lives, but only crops are being produced um, is a part of that process. Marginally, there is extraction as biopiracy, taking away the knowledge of indigenous people about medicinal plants and then patenting it and selling it. But more interestingly, there are debates also among the people who are uh, among those who try to save, and I am putting a um, quotation mark around that word, save the nature, save, for example, in, in case of my story, Melipona Beast, you know, for example, uh, there is this uh, thread of thought to save a species, you need to commercialize it, banking nature, right? So among the people I worked with, some believed that in order to save Meliponas, you need to commercialize their honey. Others would say, no, 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 the sacred cannot be commercialized. So this is kind of more subtle debate there. Um, alternatives for extraction. Here, something more interesting uh, that uh, comes from my research. I, I do believe that the framework of subject uh, versus object in our uh, conceptual thinking lead to extraction. Right? because uh, the subject is superior and is authorized to use the object that kind of comes with, with this conceptual framework. Now, imagine a framework, conceptual framework, and everybody is a subject that leads to much more respectful um, relationship where you have to give back whatever you take, right? And this is sustainability. So I do believe that we can learn a huge amount of uh, thinking and strategizing from thousands of years of indigenous uh, people's experiences. Thank you all so much. Those are brilliant answers to a really good question. Thanks, Matt. Um, speaking of questions, we'd really like to encourage and make time for audience questions. Um, I do have one of my own that I'll, I'll pose, but meanwhile, if you've got one that you're um, interested in posing, please do put it in the chat. Um, my question is a little long-winded, but I'll try to make it a bit quicker. Um, but I'm inspired by um, Kata's reminder, actually, that she spoke to just now, um, and it's in the film. It's a really powerful moment that we are all subjects, right? Which is a really, I think, 
um, eloquent way of resisting objectification, exploitation, and these ongoing colonial practices that we've been speaking about just now. Um, and to some extent, your projects, although quite different um, formally, which is where I'm headed with my question, um, are resisting those, those practices. So I'd love to hear you each speak a little bit about how you approach structure um, and form in your work with an eye toward promoting justice and challenging these exploitive practices. So, um, you know, traditional scholarship requires a kind of curation and a set of choices about things like tone and voice and what note you want to end on in your conclusion and which texts you want to include in your book. Um, Amanda writes about how stories can fill voids left by traditional maps. Um, Lynn, I think you spoke to this a bit in your comments already, but I was taken with the word layering in the podcast that I listened to um, about your book. Um, I'm also really interested in emotionality and sort of questions about how emotions can be used in our work to um, inspire care and concern. Um, so my question, I'll put a fine point on it now. Um, what kinds of narrative, emotional, structural, or other formal decisions did you make? And how did those um, serve decolonial or other justice-oriented functions in your work? Thanks so much for that question, Jennifer. I'll try to just be really brief because I know we're um, getting um, you know, low, low on time and um, there are three other speakers um, to go. But, um, but yeah, I, I love the, um, the kind of point that you extracted, sorry, couldn't, couldn't resist, from Kata's uh, film about we, we are all subjects. And I guess I would just say that, you know, I think um, my book, as I, as I said before, I mean, it's really a study about literary genre and, and narrative forms. And, you know, there's a long history of thinking about the novel in particular. And I'm not only focusing on novels, but I am looking at long prose narrative forms. So nonfiction as well as fiction. Um, but, you know, a lot of those are, are novels. And, you know, there's a long history of thinking of the novel as being a very individualist form, right? Because of the buildings roman, you know, and it, and it has a middle-class bias as well, right? If we look at the long history of it, it tends to sell, tell the story of, you know, the, the um, kind of middle-class individual. Um, so, uh, you know, it, it's, I think that question, we're all subjects, I mean, how, you know, thinking about the literary forms that we've inherited, you know, and, and how perhaps they have these biases toward, you know, individualist and capitalist modes of thinking. Um, I guess I would turn that around in some ways and say that, you know, the skills that we use as literary critics in, in reading these books are the kinds of skills that make us attentive to these questions around, you know, subject and object and storytelling, right? And kind of like the reimagining that you're talking about forms of art that, you know, maybe would be more collective or where, you know, there could be a voice that's not subject and object, right? That that um, that although we've inherited forms that maybe are are um, uh, you know not geared toward justice in the way that you're framing it in, in the question. At the same time, the the work that we do as a discipline is what makes us attentive to the kind of like discursive domains, um, you know, through through which cultural change needs to happen, along with um, material and economic change. I, I love this question, Jen, because I I actually don't think that I was consistently successful in decolonizing my stories. Um, so I guess what I would start with is is you know I tried to to make everyone and 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 some animals, some fishes, subjects, and myself too, and 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 um, made in a couple of chapters a choice to get myself out of the way. 
um, completely out of the way to be as invisible as I could. And so, for instance, this diving couple who are kind of the, the heart and soul of part two of the book, um, that's that river human scale. Um, I wanted to to bring them forward because they're the type of people who made this major discovery that really impacted the science and they had collaborated with scientists, but they and local fishers and other people were often relegated to either acknowledgements or in a method section of the scientific articles, like a local fisher, you know, who brought this species. And so they were, they were often submerged. And so, you know, I made a choice in a chapter where um, I wanted to present what they see in the river bottom to get myself out of the way. And I just structured the chapter entirely around their voices. You know, I was nowhere to be seen. And so I, you know, each vignette, I, I, I organized it and gave it, gave each vignette a theme um, so that people could follow it, but it was their voice. So I felt like that was successful. It foregrounded the incredible knowledge they had and they, they trusted me with that. Um, on the other hand, there was a, a chapter um, that I call a not-so-objective um, introduction to the fish consumption advisory um, that involved the impacts of toxic pollution, and, um, and it would have been an absolutely egregious choice to not talk about um, the impact on the First Nations in that area, because they're also the ones leading the solutions, too. Um, and so I did tell part of their story and I had to make choices about how I did that. It did involve emotionality, but the emotionality came from trying to pull their story together with this other kind of tradition of nature writing that we have. So the, the kind of masculine hunter, fisher, wilderness advocate, Jim Harrison type, who also wrote about these issues and try to pull them together into kind of a you know, a shared sensibility in which emotion was allowed and anger was allowed at, at this, you know, at both at the injustices, but also some amazing admiration and hope for the future was allowed at the way that these First Nations are driving the future with their own participatory grassroots community-based science. And, um, but I'm not sure I, I succeeded in a decolonizing exercise, you know, so, um, and maybe I'll learn here, um, <laughs> do a better job next time. So I, I think we're, I think I'm trying, but I'm not sure it's fulfilled. Um, my answer is kind of, you know, that's okay, Lynn, because <laughs> um, I, I'm actually going to not answer the question and instead kind of focus on part of the way it's asked, like, right, what is the relationship between form and the social justice aim or outcome and I think this is a question that we ask a lot in the environmental humanities. I mean, I've read so many essays in the environmental humanities that kind of end with the same conclusion that like, this calls us to action. And the question is like, okay, but like, what am I supposed to do when I close the book, when I, when the movie ends, when class ends, you know, what, what is that action? And I think when we don't see one that's very clear, that's linear, it feels like a failure. Or it feels like, oh, it's actually not doing anything. It's just, you know, wasting more carbon producing the films or whatever. Um, but this is the humanities, right? And I think this is a place where we don't have to instrumentalize, um, where we don't have to think linearly. And so, you know, I don't know what the relationship is between the form and the social justice you know, aim. And I, and I think that not knowing is where like some really amazing things can happen. We don't, we don't know when we teach our classes, like which student who's, you know, majoring in astrophysics is going to then take that with them into the work they do. It's, it's really hard to track. Um, 
which I think is why it's important to just keep paying attention to these stories and, and raising their voices. Well, just continuing with what uh, I just heard, um, I think that to decolonize, we need to transcend humanities themselves because humanities are actually constructed um, on uh, individual subjectivity. They are striving on individual subjectivity. Even, even the very fact that we have to be single authors of the books, that everything has to be done by one person, and that uh, that the language, the way that things are being told matters so much more oftentimes than their, um, so what, their, their consequences for the reality, right? So, um, I think I would say to decolonize is to transcend yourself in some way, transcend that individualism. And, um, you know, what I did in the film is to cut and cut and cut voiceover. And my idea would be to turn it, as uh, as uh, Lynn was saying, into voices, just give voices to my uh my protagonists. And in fact, at the end of the people, the same poet, Pedro Pablo Chimbacab says, don't talk about us, talk with us. So, so there are very short recipes for decolonization. Thank you. All those were great answers. Really, really thoughtful. You've given me a lot to think about. Um, it looks like we're out of time. I didn't see any questions come up in the chat. Um, does that mean we thank our panelists and Sign off. And our hosts, of course, always the um, indomitable Amy McIntyre. Thank you for Thank you so much. everything you do for Asley. Um, and it's great to see so many people from, I think, a range of locations here. Um, yeah, just thanks, everyone, for your time. Thanks so much to our panelists. This was a really provocative and smart and exciting panel. I was glad to be part of it. Thank thanks. you so much. Thanks. Yeah, right. thanks, Thank everybody. Jennifer.